Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down, a podcast by Becker's Healthcare and ECG Management Consultants in which we'll explore the upsides and downsides of healthcare and the industry's most current trends. I'm Molly Gamble, and today I'm joined by two guests, Dr. Mark Chasson, President Emeritus of the Joint Commission, and Dr. Tim Babineau, Principal of Academic Healthcare ECG Management Consultants. Before we begin today's discussion, I'd like to share a bit more about each of our speakers today. Dr. Chasson is one of the world's leading experts in healthcare quality, patient safety, and process improvement. Before stepping down at the end of 2021, he was president and CEO of the Joint Commission for 14 years, leading the world's preeminent healthcare standard setting and accrediting body. Dr. Babineau is a respected clinician, executive, and strategist who has served both as a practicing surgeon and as a health system executive leader for more than 30 years. Before joining ECG, Dr. Babineau was the president and CEO of Lifespan Health System. That's a $3 billion academic health system affiliated with the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University in Rhode Island. Dr. Chas and Dr. Babineau, thank you for joining us today and being on Healthcare Upside Down as our guests. Dr. Babineau, I will turn it over to you. Molly, thank you so much. Uh, it's a real honor and a privilege uh, to be joined by my dear friend and colleague of more than 15 years, Dr. Mark Chasson. Mark, we've got a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time, so let's dive right in if we may. Let, let's go back to the beginning, Mark. What, where, when, and why did the quality and safety movement first get started in the healthcare in this country? Mark? Well, thanks, Tim. It's great to be with you on this podcast. And I think the uh, you have to begin in the United States uh, in quality by mentioning Ernest Codman. Uh, Codman was a surgeon in the early part of the 20th century. He proposed for the first time that doctors and hospitals should follow their patients until the end results, he called it the end results idea, the end results of their interventions could be determined and learned from. Um, he was a, a, a great uh, figure in early American surgery. He helped found the American College of Surgeons. He led the effort at the college to set standards for the first time for quality in hospitals, and the college sent surveyors out Sounds familiar to see whether those standards were being complied with. And that program grew into the Joint Commission's accreditation program over the years. Uh, things did not end well, though, for Dr. Codman. He, uh, his uh, mission to get hospitals and doctors to follow his end results idea was roundly rejected. He, was, he lost his job at the Boston hospitals. And when he died, he was actually buried in an unmarked grave because his family was so poor they couldn't afford a headstone. Now, I'm happy to say that uh, 70 years later, the American College of Surgeons led an effort that the Joint Commission participated in to recognize uh, Dr. Codman, uh, raised some money, dedicated a, a very appropriate headstone to this father of, of clinical quality improvement. I think the what it took to really get the current quality movement going was hard data, data on what works and what doesn't work in healthcare. And that really didn't get going until the randomized trial became the gold standard for generating that kind of scientific data on efficacy. And it's instructive to remember that the first article from a randomized trial in healthcare was published only in 1948. And that was actually a trial of streptomycin versus bed rest in the treatment of tuberculosis. So fast forward to the 70s and 80s, 
you had several thousand articles from randomized trials published every year, and that led to research on quality of care and the demonstration that quality problems in the U.S. Uh, were widespread and serious, and that uh, culminated, that interest culminated in the IOM reports of 99 and 2000 that really galvanized the industry for the first time to spend time, effort, money on quality improvement. And that really re represents a, a kickoff that happened just uh, a little over 20 years ago. Mark, that's terrific. And I thank you for uh, reminding me that this all started with a surgeon. Uh, Absolutely. That's a, that's a wonderful legacy. Mark, um, you had an amazing tenure at the Joint Commission. You founded the, the Center for Transforming Healthcare, uh, which was really uh, an amazing achievement. Dur during your tenure there, did the healthcare industry make any progress from, from you know, when it was first uh, talked about in the early 2000s? And, and were there any notable examples of real improvement that come to mind? Yes, I think the uh, the initial surge of interest and activity around quality uh, really suffered from a lack of understanding how to improve and how to improve in a way that was sustainable. And what some early adopters, before I got to the Joint Commission, some early adopters set a really radically different goal, getting to the goal of zero harm. Cincinnati Children's Hospital, I think, was one of the earliest adopters of that ultimate goal, uh, recognizing that other industries, commercial aviation, and we can talk about that later on, uh, have actually achieved very close to zero harm. Why shouldn't healthcare be able to do that? And what I think we were able to demonstrate at the Center for Transforming Healthcare, partnering with groups of hospitals across the country to focus on specific nasty quality problems like wrong site surgery, like falls with injury, and all the quality problems that we have struggled with over the years. What we're able to show is that if you carefully dissect the reasons why these events happen. And you use both clinical expertise and very importantly, modern process improvement tools. You can identify a small number of causes of those process failures, hand hygiene, infection prevention, and you can get rid of those causes with very focused, targeted interventions. And that gives you the ability to sustain high performance over long periods of time. And there were a number of hospitals, Memorial Hermann Health System in Houston, for example, uh, a small hospital system in Southern California, then called Citrus Valley, now Emanate Health. Uh, Wentworth Douglas, a, a small hospital then independent uh, in, in New Hampshire, was able to demonstrate enormous improvements, reductions in a wide variety of adverse events using these tools. And I'd say what we learned uh, also is that there are three critical components to making that kind of improvement and actually getting to zero. The first is a an unyielding commitment on the part of leaders, all leaders, nurse leaders, physician leaders, managers, CEOs, and boards of, of governors, boards of trustees, a commitment to making quality improvement 
the number one priority. And then the other two critical activities focus on improving the culture of the organization. So everyone is looking for, trained to identify and report unsafe conditions and problems with processes when they can be fixed very easily. And then the third component is rolling out these modern process improvement tools that allow unprecedented uh, uh, high levels of performance to be sustained and spread. And that uh, combination of, uh, of leadership, safety culture, and modern process improvement was demonstrated, I think, by the center and its partners over and over again to have really remarkable results. Let's stay on this theme for a moment. Um, you, you referenced the aviation industry, which you know obviously has made immense strides in, in, in safety. Well, why do you think it's so hard for, for healthcare to take the lessons of aviation and translate them to healthcare? You know, some of my colleagues will say, well, you know, patients aren't airplanes. Well, okay. Yet there are some really valuable lessons there that it just seems healthcare has a hard time adopting. Well, why do you think that is? And also, again, talk a little bit more about how important leadership is in this. Sure. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think this is a a, a very complicated um, question, and I guess I would start first by establishing. Um, at least one marker of how far away from the safety of US commercial air travel healthcare is. Uh, the, the remarkable track record in the last 12 years of US commercial aviation, there have been only two deaths related to commercial air travel in the last 12 years, and only 203 serious injuries. And that translates to 17 serious injuries every year. There's a recent study uh, just earlier this year, Dave Bates and his colleagues published a study that looked at 11 Massachusetts hospitals in uh, the calendar year of 2018. And they used a very good methodology and determined that 1%, 1% of all admissions, patients suffered preventable adverse events with serious harm, serious injuries. Now, if those hospitals are representative and you translate that rate of 1%, that means that there are 330,000 patients with preventable harm that is serious in U.S. hospitals every year compared to 17 in aviation. And I think that broadly there are uh, two main reasons why we have not in healthcare learned enough from aviation and other high reliability industries, from uh, the military to uh, lots of others that have similarly extraordinary safety records. And the first is that improvement in healthcare happens very, very slowly. And partly that's related to how local healthcare is. If you think about the dramatic improvements that happened in automobile safety in the US. Uh, US automobiles used to break down. We're both old enough to remember every, every three or four years, you'd have to have a new car until Toyota and Honda dropped 
incredibly reliable automobiles into the U.S. market. And the U.S. auto manufacturers responded right away. The same with consumer electronics and Sony. But healthcare doesn't work that way. It doesn't really make any difference what happens in how great Cedar sinai is in Los Angeles to a New York hospital or a Rhode Island hospital. So that's the, that's the first problem. The second problem is that there is a lot of resistance in healthcare to importing lessons from other industries. There's a strong tendency to think that healthcare is unique. I've heard the same thing, planes are not people, from healthcare leaders all over the country, all over the world, in fact. And there is some truth to that. Healthcare is different, but it is not immune from the kinds of problems that these other industries have solved. And I would say to focus on one of the most important barriers to healthcare succeeding the way these other industries have is you take a deep dive into the organizational culture, the way healthcare organizations actually work on an hour to hour on a daily basis. And what these organizations that are ultra safe have figured out is that everyone who works there needs to be alert to the smallest problem, the smallest level of unsafe condition, the smallest maintenance program that isn't quite working the way it should. They can identify those problems when they're very small, when they're easy to fix. They report them, they get those reports, get acted on immediately, and the problem doesn't escalate to doing harm to the organization or its customers. What gets in the way in healthcare organizations is a, an intolerable level, a level of disrespectful and intimidating behavior that should be intolerable, but seems to be ubiquitous and hard to eradicate. That level of disrespect that healthcare workers face every day suppresses the kind of reports that are essential in high reliability organizations. Um, and just one data point on, on that specific situation, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices has now run a survey that they have called the Workplace Intimidation Survey. They did it in 2003, 2013, and 2021. The survey, if you haven't looked at it, I urge you to look at it. It details the kinds of behaviors that frontline caregivers are exposed to that, they, that are perceived as disrespectful. And the bottom line question that they asked in each of these surveys is to the respondents where, and thousands of people have responded to these surveys online. The question that they asked the bottom line survey is, my organization deals effectively with disrespectful behavior, agree or disagree. And in 2021, fully 75% of the respondents said no. Now that is a leadership problem and leaders need to undertake very detailed and persistent programs to get rid of that kind of interaction among caregivers in order to begin to get to the kind of culture that supports high performance. Mark, and again, let, let's stay with this theme for a moment. Um, the pandemic really decimated healthcare in this country in, in so many different ways that, that are familiar to you and me and, and our listeners. One of the things that strikes me as I speak to colleagues around the country is, whereas during you know most of 
2010 to 2020, pre-pandemic, if you will, um, quality and safety was at the top of most leaders' agendas. It was at the top of the board's agenda. It was at the top of the C-suite agenda. It was at the top of my agenda. It seems, however, that in the post-pandemic world, when I talk to people, the focus is back on margin improvement and and keeping the lights on. And my perception, and I want to hear your opinion about this, is that quality and safety has sort of fallen back off the radar, which to me is really, really troubling. Just wanted your perception. Is that accurate? And if it is accurate, what, what's the long-term consequences of that? Yeah, uh, Tim, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it is absolutely accurate. It's supported by data from surveys of CEOs and healthcare leaders who say, have said for the last uh, two or three years that their top four issues are finances, finances, workforce, and workforce, and not necessarily in that order. Uh, and, and it's totally understandable why those issues are so sharply felt uh, as uh, the focus of attention by healthcare leaders. But leaving quality out, and I've, I've read now uh, with all the leadership turnover that continues to plague healthcare, uh, new leaders coming into leadership roles, and never once have I seen quality identified as a top priority for new leadership. That's incredibly short-sighted. It's short-sighted because uh, number one, obviously the mission of healthcare delivery organizations is to deliver high quality care consistently uh, for the benefit of patients. Uh, but in addition, Many of the problems that are cited as taking up everybody's attention today could be effectively addressed in, in large part, not in total, but in large part by a focus on quality. I've uh, not seen an activity that is so effective at engaging frontline workers and employees as training them in improvement deploying them as part of their daily work to do improvement of the processes that they touch every day, getting rid of the pain points that make them feel burned out and frustrated. And when they solve those problems themselves with the mentorship of process improvement professionals, the pride they feel in their work, in their organization, you can't buy that. You can't buy it with benefits. You can't buy it with overtime. And so I've seen that happen over and over and over again. And at the same time, these same process improvement tools that have been proven to work to get to zero falls with injury, for example, to get to zero central line infection, zero catheter-associated urinary tract infections, these same process improvement tools find savings. They find glitches in processes that cost organizations money. Many organizations that went into this in the 2000s demonstrated a return on investment of three to one, four to one. Mayo has a great publication. Their program uh, demonstrated a return on investment of five to one. And so you can avoid the across the board budget cuts and layoffs, uh, not entirely, but in large measure by a focus on quality and safety and process improvement. 
Great, Mark, let's, um, let's wrap up uh, with revisiting a topic that you and I have chatted about uh, over the years, and that is really the, um, the alphabet soup that exists out there for so-called agencies that, that measure quality, measure saving. The ones that come to mind are you know, LeapFrog, US News and World Report, CMS star ratings, you know, consumers are confused. Well, what's your opinion of those rating agencies and their accuracy at measuring real quality and real safety at the bedside? Yeah, the short answer is not much. <laughs> uh, so I would, uh, I would say uh, one uh, very broad brush uh, problem with these reports on hospital quality is that many of them uh, try to give a single grade, like LeapFrog or the CMS star ratings, a single grade to an entire hospital for their quality. Um, and even if those grades were based on good measures of quality, and we'll get to that because they're not, but even if they were, uh, what patients go to a hospital for is not the average of an experience across everything that that hospital does. They go to a hospital for a very specific reason. And we know that quality uh, in all its dimensions, from outcomes to patient experience, varies enormously within a hospital. So an experience on the pediatric service doesn't predict an experience on the orthopedic service. So pretending that you can represent an average experience in a single number is misleading to patients, and we ought to just stop doing that. But the other big problem is that 80 to 90% of the measures that roll up to these uh, averages or that are presented as individual measures of quality are demonstrably invalid, demonstrably invalid measures of quality of care. And we don't have time to dissect every one of these, but let me see if I can give you two quick examples. A lot of these uh, reports uh, from CMS, health grades, and US News use mortality rates as a way of judging hospital quality. Now, you can do that. You can use mortality for specific conditions as a very valid measure of quality, but to do that, you need to be able to adjust for the differences between hospitals and their patient populations. And that requires something called statistical risk adjustment that has to take two different types of factors into account. The severity of the condition that you're measuring mortality for, how big was that MI or how big was that stroke? and the other conditions, the comorbidities that patients have. If you roll those together accurately with good technique, you can demonstrate hospitals that have greater mortality than they should have based on the nature of their patient population. The problem with all of these rating systems that use hospital mortality is they use Medicare claims data from the billing systems, and there aren't any good data on severity. Now, that's a problem because the markers of severity are the most powerful predictors of whether a patient is likely to die or not. So prima facie, those measures are invalid measures of quality. And the way these systems work, they use different mixes of invalid measures of quality. So they're wildly inconsistent one to the other. It's a great study used a great methodology a few years ago that compared 
the top four of these rating schemes. And what they found is wild inconsistency. No hospital was identified as a top hospital in all four of the rating systems. And of the 800 hospitals that were rated as a top hospital in any one of the systems, only 10% were rated a top hospital in any other report. So there are wild inconsistencies among and between these rating systems. And the last thing I'll say is that the vast majority of them also use another set of questionable data, data on complications also derived from Medicare claims because Medicare is the only national system that produces national data. Uh, it's bad data when it comes to quality, but they use it anyway. And the problem with using complication data is that they rely on a notoriously inconsistent and unreliable set of information called secondary diagnoses. So if you're admitted for heart failure and you have a fall, that fall is coded as a secondary diagnosis. But here's, and there are many problems with that data source, but here's uh, one of the most important. If you're a hospital, for example, it does a very diligent, has a diligent program to prevent pressure injuries. And you're looking very carefully for pressure injuries and you're identifying them, you're noting them and you're treating them. You're gonna look like you have a very high rate of injury compared to a hospital that doesn't care very much and doesn't write enough information down to code those uh, complications as complications. So that, way of using data actually punishes the organization that's doing a good job. So uh, long story short, these rating systems do not measure hospital quality and we should stop paying attention to them. My only regret is that we're out of time. Uh, I could talk about this for hours. Hopefully you'll uh, come back at a future date and we can, we can drill down a little bit more deeply. Dr. Codman would be proud, I can tell you that. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Mark Chasson, former president and chief executive officer for the Joint Commission. I'm Dr. Tim Babineau. Thanks for listening in. Mark, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Tim.